Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to the Deutsche Grammophon's international podcast series. I'm Sarah Willis, and as I believe I have mentioned before, I just love podcasting with the Yellow Label's star-studded cast of musicians. And we have another very special guest for you today. He has a new album out together with his orchestra, the Bamberger Symphonica. And in the album notes, he wrote that this recording was a result of his academic bed studies. So I'm definitely going to ask him about that today. Actually, I'm grateful to him because the album contains a piece I had never heard before, the first symphony by Hans Rott. And now I'm dying to play it myself because of the great horn writing in it. Maestro Jakob Hrusha, welcome to the Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast Series. Thank you. My great pleasure. And, and this is quite a setup, you know. I, I prefer to have people in the studio, but these days we're doing it the good old-fashioned way with Zoom and headphones and non-working headphones. And yeah, so sorry for all the complications, but it's wonderful that I can at least see you while we're talking. <laughs> Absolutely. So tell me where you are right now. And yeah, how was your day so far? What have you been up to? I am in Bamberg, so really at the source of the recording. And we have been... Uh, rehearsing for the project this week with Mitsuko Uchida, who plays Beethoven's fifth piano concerto, and we do some Strauss, also Sprach Zarathustra, and a world premiere of a piece by Bernd Richard Deutsch, which is written for us, basically. And I know you, you ha you're just like in between two things because as the chief conductor, it's not just conducting an orchestra, is it? You know, for people who are listening around the world, just think a, a chief conductor maybe just has to show up and do a few concerts. You're involved with like the whole, the whole running of this, of this place, aren't you? It's true. But, you know, Bamberg, it's, it's a paradise. They don't overload me with things which are not art and music. And I think it's very special in this regard. Well, I am holding in my hand, I think probably one of the very first people to have you actually seen the album yet? I mean, you've listened to it, but uh, to have like the, this actual CD in your hand, I know CDs are probably out these days. We're way too old. Young people only listen to streaming. But for me, it's always quite an emotional experience because you're holding in your hand part of your life, you know, True. part of the, you know, the, the, the heart and the soul and the worries and the love. And, and then you have it in your hand and it's there. So how do you feel about this album? I feel very well. And an anecdote goes like this. I was in Salzburg for the summer festival and I was looking forward to receiving some copies and I really received a box of, you know, a very heavy box of what I thought were the CDs because I knew I would be signing them for fans of Deutsche Grammophon. So I opened the box and it was only booklets. So it didn't include the <laughs> CD. So first thing I went through was like signing about 50 booklets with my name without really holding the CD itself. And as I came back to Bamberg, they were waiting for me, a couple of samples. Of course, I opened it and I got through the booklet and I got to the CD and I took it out of the box beautifully and then I put it back so I didn't listen to it yet <laughs> it's a, it's a proud moment and I have listened to it so I said in my introduction that as a horn player I'm very excited because you've introduced me to a piece I've never heard before and I'm dying to play because there's so much fantastic brass writing in there I tell you my lips were hurting just mm -hmm. from listening it's huge <laughs> it's huge indeed one of the most you know, demanding pieces, especially for the brass player. 
but for everyone, I think we can speak about it a bit more. It's a highly original piece. It's absolutely worth listening, but it's it's a hard journey for the orchestra. So I think only those who really have enthusiasm to do it well and are convinced it's worth it will really succeed with it because it's not a routine piece at all. Did you have uh, trouble convincing people to do this or are Bamberg just as adventurous as you are? The second one, no. I've never got uh, troubles to convince anyone here about anything. We have the other trouble. We have so many ideas, so, so many plans and possible actions that we have to, you know, cancel this and that because there's no space. But really, uh, I don't, I try not to overload the orchestra with like millions of suggestions amongst which one is lost after a while. I, I really, every now and then, I get excited about something. And I think if my colleagues and the musicians and the management and everyone and the public in the end notice the uh, enthusiasm, I think they know they are up to something special because I think it radiates collectively than in the recording and in the public concerts more than something which has been done before and doesn't cause that enthusiasm. So this was the case, really. In the booklet, you wrote a beautiful introduction to everything, but I have to pick up on a couple of words you use that, of course, made me think, what is he talking about? And these words are your academic bed studies. Now, of course, <laughs> you know, I had to laugh a little bit when I heard that, but you do explain it. You know, you, you, were, you, you discovered this piece while you were researching lying on your bed. You know, that's, that's probably where a lot of our inspiration <laughs> happens you know you were just you, you discovered it by chance it was not planned was it exactly i mean a, it was it was a beautiful what seemed like a random discovery but maybe it was a destiny or whatever so i was on my first huge project after i started in bamberg um with bruckner's music you know i had always had passion for bruckner but i hadn't had so much fantastic opportunity to do it well. I think it, you really need an orchestra devoted and in love with this music to enjoy it. And that was before this first experience. And it was Bruckner 4. And I had a difficult task actually to decide about the version of this. And I really couldn't uh, for a while. And so I was studying from all possible ends. And at one point, just before going to sleep, it was really all, almost midnight, I think. I was really already in bed and I was just thinking, I'll get some more you know, information about Bruckner, not just about his music, but about him as a man. And I got to this paragraph about him as a teacher. And it was quite quite interesting to hear about what he thought, how he was. He was a very peculiar person. I mean, not, not everyone understood him, of course, at his time. And then there was this uh, teaching activity. And I thought, okay, for once, I would love to know, because he was so original himself, what music of his students sounded like. And I thought, I would just get a sample. You know, these days it's easy, online, Spotify, whatever. So I thought, I just will go through those about five or six names of his students, and I will just get a, a feeling for it, for it. And the first one was Hans Roth. So I put his symphony in E major there. I found a recording, and um, I thought it would be just five minutes or ten or something, just an idea. And I stayed for the whole time because it was so it's fascinating. It's one hour long. Yes. <laughs> it's a really big thing. Yes, I was very sleepy next day in the rehearsal, but... 
I must say that it, you know, captivated me completely. I couldn't stop listening to it. Also because it's got a very particular form, you know, basically every next movement gets more and more ambitious and longer. So like it starts already kind of in an alluring way. You're immediately in the middle of his world and atmosphere, but it gets kind of more and more adventurous and, and bigger and more unusual. So it captures your attention from the start till the end. And I thought, wow, this is something. And basically next morning I, I you know, booked a score to be sent. And then I decided I will share this experience with uh, other people because, of course, it's not just his music. It's also the story of Hans Roth's life, which is very interesting. His and very short life. Very short I mean, life. Tragically. Tragic, poor uh, and, you know, unnoticed to much extent or even, you know, not understood totally. And then he got mad and then he died of tuberculosis and he was over 20. And, you know, I thought this all is interesting enough, but what's of course the most interesting of all, like the first thing you feel when you listen to this piece, you sense a bit of Bruckner, his teacher, but you sense much more of Gustav Mahler. And you think like, uh, what did this guy do? Did he steal from Mahler? I mean, this is this is something very similar to to you know so many ideas of Mahler, especially from his symphonies number no. one and two are there. And then you get interested what happened there, and you realize in a while that not only that he didn't steal from Mahler, but he you know came with these ideas like many years before Mahler used them for the first time in his first symphony. And that connected to the fact that no one knows about this composer felt like uh, it's almost an obligation to get this person more known to the musical world. Well, when I when I was listening to it, I actually thought when it started, I was like, okay, this is interesting. It sounds a bit like Bruckner at the beginning, or it could it be Mahler? And I hadn't researched it yet. So I on purpose, I usually don't research when I'm doing these podcasts, I listen to the music before I form an opinion about something. So I, I didn't even look up anything about Hans Roth. So I was lost. I thought, am I listening? Who am I listening to? And then by the time I got to the third movement, I had to go back and checked. I thought Spotify might have jumped, you know, to a piece by Mahler because the third movement for me sounded like the, the fifth symphony scherzo. And uh, I thought, oh, maybe it's gone into Blumina, maybe something. But it's really interesting when you think that he had died before Mahler's first symphony was premiered. So he'd never heard this music of Mahler. So did Mahler steal from him? I also, to be honest, I heard a lot of Meisterzing. I don't know, maybe it was just me. But I heard no, a no. lot of Wagner's Meisterzing, especially in the last movement. You yeah. know what I mean? Those those bits, this, the building up, it's quite pompous and quite noble. Mm -hmm. um, that's after the fourth movement starts really weirdly. I was like, is it is it running? And there's these like, beep. It's like raindrops, and then then the piece starts. You know, no, it's so totally it's fascinating. It's totally fascinating, and um, I wouldn't say Mahler stole from Hansrod. That would be inappropriate. But not only that, Hansrod couldn't hear Mahler's first symphony because he wasn't premiered back then. But uh, I don't think Mahler's first symphony was started at the moment, and. I think, uh, you know, Mahler also had Roth's music at home. 
So stealing is a, is a strong word. Mahler is... Being influenced by him, maybe <laughs> yeah. we could say that. He was influenced by him. Mahler cannot be, you know, uh, you know Mahler's originality and uh, genius cannot be destroyed by any, uh, any aspect of how we look at it. Another anecdote is, as I was recording this, Rod Symphony, I was doing Mahler 2 right next week uh, as a season opening in Santa Cecilia in Rome. And I told my musicians here in Bamberg, I told them, look, I think I will remember Hans Roth next week a lot. And with all my passion, enthusiasm and love to this Roth symphony we recorded, as soon as I was in the middle of Mahler, I didn't remember Roth once. I mean, Mahler is Mahler, but... But that's funny you say that because I have just come to you from a rehearsal of Mahler 1. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, literally from the film, from the Philharmonie to you here in the studio. And I, I, f- listening to this piece by Hans Roth, I felt a little bit changed. I, f- I was yeah. found myself looking out yeah. for bits that I thought, poor, I feel really sorry for poor old Hans, you know. Yeah. If he hadn't have, if he hadn't have died, maybe he would be the one writing these huge symphony of a, a thousand and, and things like yes, that. Yes, exactly that. And so my case was like I was in the middle of doing this Mahler too, and I j- just forgot to remember answer you know but um the thing is of course Mahler cannot be you know compromised because he he was actually as we know him more skillful as composer well, I get to it later because he also could improve his pieces during the time so if you do Totenfire the first movement of the second symphony you know uh you see that he developed so much through his conducting activity and his composing experience and he improved his pieces which the poor Hans didn't have chance to do but what I find absolutely impossible to bear is that no one even like mentions Hans Roth that he inspired Mahler with something Mahler himself mentioned it which makes me kind of in peace, you know, because Mahler said, I paraphrase, I wouldn't, you know, Hans Roth showed us the new path of the symphony or something like that. Bruckner said that as well. You know, Brahms was absolutely of a different opinion. I mean, they, they discussed him somehow hotly, you know, and I find impossible that his name is totally forgotten. I read a very new book now, I will not mention the author, but it's all about Mahler symphonies and it's a fantastic book. And it goes like through immense detail of content and context of the time and other guys and how he got, I mean, how Mahler got to composing symphonies and Hans Roth, it's such a thick book and Hans Roth is not mentioned once. And I find it really unjust. And I was thinking, of course, Mahler knew how to get the best out of, uh, you know, his own inspirations and genius ideas. But uh, what I realized, and that's the main message, basically, we always thought it was only and only Mahler who could bring these ideas and these uh, atmospheres and these visions into the field of music. I mean, Hans Roth shows us that a huge part of what we love about Mahler was like a zeitgeist, you know, like the the time was ready to welcome someone doing this. And Mahler did it without precedence and at the top, top, top level. 
Of but, course he did, but you know, who knows? Who knows? We just will never know. Of course yeah. we wouldn't, because poor old Hans died at age 25, I think, of tuberculosis. And as you said, he'd also had mental problems. So he, the poor guy, you know, maybe, but he expressed himself in this first symphony, which as we say, is huge. And I'm hoping that the, the listeners will now all be rushing mm. to, to listen to this album because who who do you think will be interested? Do you think it'll be Mahler fans? Do you think it'll be classical music fans that are dying to find something new? Because for me, as a horn player who's heard most things and played most things, you know what it's like. You know, I'm always happy when something new comes in the orchestra that I don't know because it's, it's really interesting for that. And so to hear this, I got really excited because I was like, wow, I, I really... I mean, I had a good background and I, I was a good student, but I'd never heard of him. I really hadn't. I'm ashamed to say. So listening to the album and wondering if it had skipped and gone into Mahler and then going back and Googling it and finding out, you know, all these things about it and reading your beautiful booklet, it, it's, it, it's a discovery. So who do, who do you think is going to be excited by listening to this? I think Mahler fans, definitely, uh, or people who are interested in music of that period in general, and then those who are really like discoverers in principle, like uh, born curious people. Like you, what you described about yourself, I had a very similar journey, but it, I hope uh, always when I do something, when I convince people to do something unknown, I usually have a background of my own enthusiasm, you know, unexpected journey of my own, which led me where I am with my enthusiasm. And I think it can really cause the same effect on all people. And I did um, an interesting thing as we were recording it, and then I got the editing work uh, to be done and so on. I always sent samples of this music without any comment to very knowledgeable friends, you know, <laughs> around myself in various countries. And I always asked, what is this music? Who is it by? <laughs> Good and also, idea, and what came back? All possible variety, like no one knew it was Hans Roth, not a single one. Of course, there was Bruckner, Mahler, then even things like Korn Gold, and you know, uh, you know, uh, some some bits remind uh, of some movie music or whatever you call it. But I would like to say one observation which only came to me as I was doing it live. We were not only recording it, but also playing in concerts and little tour to Austria. Oh, the poor and, brass players. Oh, <laughs> well, they, there was the only project where actually all principals of the brass section asked for a jumper, for the bumper, you know. A bumper, a jumper. Jumper, bumper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have to explain what a bumper is. Uh, you, everyone knows what a jumper is. And, uh, it's very good if brass players wear jumpers in the winter. But a bumper is an assistant player. So the principal players ask for an assistant to take some of the, the hard work which the lips have to do um, off the principal player so that the principal player is fresh. Yeah. Yeah. for the concert. And in the booklet, you can see on the picture, and I was wondering how many of them were bumpers or whether it was really scored for that big an orchestra. But I, I when I heard it, I thought it must be bumpers. It must yeah. be assistance. Because, there, was, uh, yeah. there were many bumpers and jumpers. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, they, they don't usually do it because there's certain, uh, you know, logical and beautiful pride of a player like I can I can do the job, which is you know, given to me well. Uh, I mean, in, interesting, in in an English-speaking world, there's much more a habit of, like, the first horn having uh, 
a bumper. But here in Germany, it's not not the case. And well, in England, there's a lot of freelancing that goes on much more than here. And so it yeah. gives someone an extra gig. Whereas here in Europe, everyone's mostly on contract. So it's like yeah. even saving money if you don't have a bumper. But as you say, it's a pride thing. We, we, we try to do it all ourselves. But this piece, I tell you, even I would have had a bumper on Lowhorn. No, I think I think many people had really. I don't remember exact number, but they were. It was absolutely unusual, and but it was. I was very happy they did uh, ask for that or did organize it, because I mean, Rod. Uh, in comparison with Mahler, we we spoke about Mahler a lot, but Rod really, and that's an interesting thing. It could cause interest in another a group of fans. He really handles the orchestra in a most fantastic way, like the best human-breathing organ instrument, like organ, you know. He was an organist. He was a fantastic improviser. I mean, he could really impress Bruckner by his organ improvisations. And Bruckner said that, like, no one can actually play organ better than Hans Roth and create stuff. I think he was one of those guys who sat, you know, at the organ and started playing and everyone lost their breath and no one wanted that to end. And it's in some way you can hear that. It's mirrored in the symphony, like a constant, you know, <laughs> development somewhere you don't expect it really to be. And when it gets the most monumental, you, you, you have no idea it will get even triple so. And that's the problem. It's not only that it's loud, but he handles the players like, you know, whistles of the organ. So you would basically press a forte button and then you hold it for like 10 pages and that's not manageable. So you, you, it's not possible. Also, he challenges us with very mad, we would say, prescriptions, like he would write sempre and now F, 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 like <laughs> fortissimo. And he would Every write... Every brass player's dream. Yeah, well, the, the dream to the extent, but then he writes it like 10 subsequent pages on each yeah. page, in each page. And the most interesting thing, that was not the hardest. The hardest were the passages where everyone needs to hold incredibly long notes in pianissimo. Like... The registers, which on organ it's easy, you just press the buttons, the, the keys, and it just plays and holds, you know, in tune. But of course, to hold for, for minutes long, very subtle and uh, gentle chords in slightly unusual registers, that was the hardest thing, especially for the recording, because you do it once and twice, and <laughs> then it's it's over, basically. So... Everyone had to be motivated to do it really extremely well, but it was worth yes. it. It was worth it. And I think it sounds uh, virtuous it, it enough. It really does. <laughs> it's massive. But listening to it as someone from the orchestra, it was like, how on earth did they do that? And then when I looked in the booklet, I realized, OK, they've all got bumpers. But I think we really have to give a shout out to the first trumpet and the first horn because the whole piece starts with this. Was it Marcus? Marcus Mester playing Marcus first Mester, trumpet? Yeah. I thought I saw him on the picture. We used to play in youth orchestra together in the European Community Youth Orchestra. So wow. I was very happy to see him and to hear that he's still playing so amazing because the piece starts with a very simple 
trumpet line. But you know, and I know that the simple trumpet lines are sometimes the hardest, and especially in concert, because these simple little things are incredibly hard to do. And then it was followed by, it's immediately picked up by the first horn. And I think that was Andreas. Andreas Krajhova, yeah. And uh, and and I was just really impressed with with, with all the brass, with, with everyone, the winds and the strings, but uh, especially the brass for this, because mm. it's, a, it's a monumental challenge. And uh, I'm sure they had many beers after the concert. <laughs> they deserved them. And uh, we brought it to Linz, where Andreas has his home. So he was, I mean, you cannot imagine the applause after the symphony uh, for him when I... In the Bruckner house, uh, no less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was, you know, uh, letting him stand uh, uh, up. And he he was a hero of the night, of course. But Markus Mester played the trumpet. And this piece, as well as Blumina, of course, has similarly delicate and demanding task. And I think he did a fantastic job. I like the fact that you've included both the two people, the composers closest to Hans Roth. You've got the symphonic prelude by Bruckner and Blumina from, by Mahler, which was supposed to actually be in the, is it the, the first or the in second the first symphony? symphony yeah. In the first symphony. Why did he actually cut that out? It's, it's, it's sort of become this famous trumpet solo that appears in all auditions, but it's not played so often. No, I think he, it, was, it was played with Blumina for some while. Then he, I think he found maybe it... Uh, formally the piece would have much more direction and momentum without it but it's 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 by far maybe not maybe he didn't have a good trumpet player maybe <laughs> but it's by far not as ambitious as the rest of the symphony and as Roth's symphony but i but think but isn't as, that the beauty of it exactly, i i like exactly. that about it yeah it's very tender gentle and very poor and also this Bruckner piece, Symphonic Prelude, that was also an interesting thing because it's also kind of a discovery. For a long time, it, people thought it was by Mahler because there was the, the discourse. And only in the latest times it was discovered it was really by Bruckner. But it really cannot fit this context of Hans Roth better and Mahler, who both were Bruckner's students, because it seems like it was something like Bruckner's composition which he didn't fully finished and gave it maybe to his class to orchestrate. And there was this uh, this guy, Krzyzanowski, who basically wrote, it's definitely a piece by Bruckner, but there's no certainty Bruckner really finished it until the last note. It's very much like Bruckner, but there could be a touch by someone uh, from the circle of Bruckner, I mean, the youngsters, so actually, it's the best piece to to go with Roth and and Mahler. So, but also pretty huge, you know. I I mean, I'm speaking as you know, a sympathy for all the winds. It's pretty for me. That's an example of like his organ work. His knowledge of the organ is yeah. just like long lines and a lot of breathing together and a lot of yeah, a lot of holding long notes and uh, and and playing together. So you you really put them through their paces. Your yeah, Bamberger Symphonica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they they love these challenges, you know. Ultimately, it's interesting, really, uh, if they if they feel it's worth it, there's no limit. And I think the challenges like this get the best out of the orchestra. I mean, it, of course, they always play beautifully, but this was very special. And I remember, you know, not many projects resonate like this, you know, when you do direct to disc or something like that. But this is really a 
uh, it was a fantastic repertoire to record. And one of those things, I already got comments from some musicians, you know, like they were, of course, sweating, playing it and kind of uh, occasionally swearing that it's very hard. And then they hear the result and they are absolutely in heaven how fantastic it is. And then it's like the, the pride of the orchestra is so naturally and authentically getting up, you know, even even to a nicer place, like, okay, we can deliver such a thing that it actually sounds easier than it is. You know, you can you can uh, judge it because you have such an expertise yourself. But it, for other people, it I, I hope it doesn't sound like it's incredibly demanding. It sounds like it's it's a it's a dense piece. It's it's a, it, it has got fantastic energy, but um, I think that it should be like that. You know, people should not feel that after a concert or hearing a recording like they're exhausted because the players were as well. <laughs> I think no, no, that's 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 the uh, the secret of our art. You know, Maria Callas in a masterclass said something which I use in all my masterclasses. She said, "The audience don't pay to hear you try." <laughs> and yeah. so it's our job, even though now because this is what the podcast is for. People want to know the insider things, and that's what we're talking about. That it is actually really hard to record this sort of music. But when you're you're right, when people are in the concert hall. They should just sit back and think, oh, wow, and not notice that it's actually hard for us. But when I was listening to it, I, I saw a lot of movie. I saw a lot of mm. film. I saw a lot of, and I was wondering if you were, if, if this music, the first symphony by Hans Roth, if you were going to put that into a movie, what sort of movie would it be, do you think? You ask a wrong person. I'm not a movie expert at all. You're not. I am, okay. I am a music nerd and uh, I, I'm not knowledgeable about movies. But actually, okay, well, I'm let's not... see. Maybe we get some of the audience to exactly. listen and some of our listeners. I would really like to know what they think and uh, what sort of movie they would put Hans Roth to and also who would star in it. I'd like to know that too. <laughs> Maybe you and me. <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> You're a music nerd. I really like that. What makes you a music nerd? Well, like instead of doing other stuff in bed before going to sleep, uh, well, I should say I was alone in that bed, you know. So I wasn't going to go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was alone, and instead of like uh, getting to dream nicely, I was studying about Bruckner and his pupils. So what, what more nerdy can you find? <laughs> I think it's it says a lot. No, but I have like stages. I don't like to study things and explore things like in a pre-planned moment. I hate like tasks, like you will study from two. I cannot do that. But if I have like passion leading me, like to maybe spend even the whole night with the score, I'll do it. And then I have other days where I don't open it. So I'm very instinctuous and kind of immediate person. When I want to get deeper in something about music, I'll do it. And sometimes it's at <laughs> unexpected moments. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jakob, next time you come to Berlin and conduct my orchestra, we're going to the movies, okay? Okay, you have to you, <laughs> you have to navigate me there, yeah. Okay, maybe the new Indiana Jones film or something will be oh, out. Well, no I, do, idea. I know that one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not the new one. There's another one coming. <laughs> okay. 
Well, listen, thank you so much for your insights on Hansrod. And I'm so happy to talk to you about it because there's only a limited amount of what you do find about him, as you say. Yeah. And I think for me, it's it's changed Mahler as well in, in a good way. It's just made me more excited about where he got his inspiration yeah. from and maybe and what was happening. And also as a, as, a, as a brass player, what was happening with instruments at the time and yeah. how come these people could play that stuff. Yeah. If we're finding it hard these days and we know how, how technique is advanced i think you know, sarah how? i think they couldn't <laughs> <laughs> which is maybe why mala got rid of lumina you never know i think they couldn't uh, it's very beautiful what you said and i noticed some most passionate musicians in my orchestra went through like um strange development of mood when we recorded it like First, some of them were almost offended that the model of Mahler was taken down from, you know, the, 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 the podium slightly. And then they found exactly what you described, like it's so beautiful to actually uh, have the context around Mahler of his whole time richer and more interesting. And you appreciate Mahler in a different way when you know Hansrod and vice versa. So... I think this and dialogue you, is beautiful. Also, you appreciate Bruckner as a teacher, because if this guy was a result of Bruckner's teaching, then he must have been a pretty good teacher. And Bruckner the man, because Bruckner was one of the very few people who actually promoted Roth, unlike Johannes Brahms, whom I adore as a composer. But he took a, the cynical point of view, like he said, Roth, stop composing, this is, this is nonsense, do something proper. And uh, Bruckner was hearing so many comments of this kind, like, you know, not trusting comments. He stood for Hansrod. He repeated, you'll be surprised what this young man will show us. Well, if he knew that he would die so uh, so soon, unfortunately. Now, these days, you are the one standing for Hansrod. So I'm sure wherever he is, I'm sure he's very grateful. And we're grateful to you for bringing this beautiful recording. So thank you very much for joining us today on the International Podcast Series. And uh, I look forward to hearing it live in concert sometime soon. Would be great. Maybe with you playing. <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm going to have to go and practice. <laughs> Jakob, thank you so much for joining us. My great pleasure. Just one more thing, if you've enjoyed this episode today with Jakob and you'd like to hear future episodes or catch up on past episodes like this one, do subscribe to us to wherever you listen to your podcasts from. I'm Sarah Willis and I can't wait to be with you next time. Bye-bye.